Welcome back, everyone. It's been a while, but you're listening to What It's Like with Luce, a podcast highlighting ordinary people doing extraordinary things. I'm your host, Lucy Norris, and on today's episode, I'm going to be sitting down with women's rights activist and Singapore's first ever burlesque performer. Coming from a very conservative, traditional family, growing up this week's guest stifled her creativity and expression to please her family, but always knew there'd come a point she needed to let it be free. When it came to career, she first followed a more conventional path entering the world of IT and started her first job in the UK, where she spotted a burlesque club down the street from her office and everything changed. From her first solo show to performing on some of the biggest stages in the world and changing legislation in her home country, she has quite the story to tell. Here's what it's like to be Suki Menon, otherwise known as Suki Singapura. So how I like to kick all of these episodes off is just by giving everyone a bit more of an idea as to who Suki is and who she was before everything happened. So would you mind um, telling me a bit about what it was like for you growing up? Wow. Um, Gosh, I had a very eclectic childhood being biracial. So it really was a mixture of um, Singapore and the UK. Um, And obviously my father being Indian Singaporean, you kind of get thrown into the Indian mix. Um, so it's like, almost like a very global citizen upbringing. And, and, and so that, that kind of gave me for a long time, this sense of like, where's my cultural identity of which I slowly started to find. I think as you mature, you find your place in the world and you realize that your place can just be that you're a citizen of earth. Um, but even though it was that bicultural sort of tri-cultural experience um because I was biracial it was almost as if my father wanted us to become more Asian than Asian and so what I experienced was an incredibly culturally stringent childhood which was very 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 hyper conservative extremely strict very very traditional Indian Singaporean values and then even kind of like harking back to old school Indian values. Um, my mother it was from a, well, is from a conservative family as well. Her, her mom was actually the first ever female vicar to be ordained in the UK. Her whole family worked for the church. Um, so being part Western did not help the cause of um, liberation and freedom of expression in terms of my childhood. And so, it, yeah, it was, um, it was very, conflicting and confusing because you've got working out who you are and where you're from and then you've got being I always question things being sort of you know curious and having an inquisitive mind sort of being very very repressed and in contrast to the person that I wanted to be or how I wanted to explore but it was it was challenging it was a challenge there were of course happy moments but I think when you get to that age where you start to ask why that's when you butt heads with whatever your upbringing is I suppose I'm so challenging yeah yeah it's so interesting to hear that from your perspective and I suppose against that background that you've just described there where do you think this want for freedom of expression and obviously leading into the career that you would have in burlesque came from when you didn't really by the sounds of things have that many avenues to explore even understand what else was out there maybe yeah I think um I think it kind of well I was when I was 
born literally and then the formative years up to the age of two I think it was really obvious that I was an artist I mean you look at old pictures of me I'm standing in some kind of plie formation or I'm doing a turnout um, I'm exploring clothes I'm holding them in a sense of I'm experiencing a sense of pride and there's a clear there's a clear visual as a child that I am expressing myself and I'm I'm incredibly artistic and I think that um, because unfortunately the archaic values of this Indian stereotype become a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer um, because of that and how that was kind of very much encouraged if not slightly forced upon me um, I experienced this sensation of being somebody naturally but not being allowed to express it um, and that injustice emboldened me to become a passionate individual um, and experience this, this urge, I suppose, um, to not let other people experience what I'd experienced. Because there's a terrible angst that you feel when you are, you are clearly born to be something and you're not allowed to be that. And you, you just, it's so painful. You just don't want that upon anyone else. Um, so I think because I was in that headspace of, of repression, 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 repression. It can either go two ways. One, you can stay repressed and conservative, or two, something's going to give. And so I did end up doing the sciences. I was very studious, of which I can do because I, I kind of have that dual brain, but I didn't want to do it. Ended up getting into IT, believe it or not. Um, but I clearly had this massive art artistic urge and that found its way out in burlesque. So even though I'd never heard of burlesque, hadn't been exposed to these kind of things it was as if the minute I heard about it it resonated not because I wanted to be a burlesque performer but because everything burlesque stood for was so everything that I wanted to do it was female empowerment it was sex positivity talking about your body expressing yourself it was fashion it was art it was getting on stage it was being liberated it was pushing against stereotypes it was being able to be controversial, it was taking ownership, there were no barriers and no walls. And I think just that all encompassing ethos gravitated me towards it. And so then it was kind of like no one was going to take that away from me because I had so wanted to express myself that any challenge that that um, undermined me being able to do that or me seeing any of my peers or sisters or brothers you know or siblings not being able to do that um I was going to naturally push back against from those experiences of childhood because it was it was a case of now um I'm never going to let that happen again so anything it could even be a law in a country <laughs> it can even be burlesque not being allowed to be accepted as a public art form in Singapore it doesn't matter how great the challenge is now it's becoming bigger than just a person wanting to try out burlesque and I think it's incredible because even just hearing you speak about it 
I cannot feel the passion that you have for something. <laughs> and it's so amazing to hear how you found that one thing in life that really clicked and resonated with every aspect of what you wanted to be. But so you mentioned you studied IT. I think it was in Nottingham that you did that. Um, and then did you find burlesque in Manchester? How did you stumble upon this thing that would become so important in your life? Well, I actually majored in geography as a science because that was the compromise for my dad. So it wasn't hardcore science, but it wasn't art, but it was the Bachelor of Science degree. So therefore, it's science. It counts. <laughs> um, but I was very good. I, got, I actually got a first in the cartography segment of it, which was a lot of IT, actually. Um, so I knew I was a geek and I could do IT. And then I suppose I just didn't want to be thrust down this path of geography and being a scientist um I just I just didn't I just knew that it wasn't you know I, I was scientifically minded but it wasn't my raison d'etre if you will so um I suppose then I sort of thought well I'm I'm a nerd I'm good at IT I'm online a lot hey I'll learn IT and I I taught myself IT actually as is very much the narrative of my existence I tend to kind of teach myself things if I need to know things rather than do it the right way whatever the right way is um so yeah I taught myself IT and then I kind of um just was really good enough to get straight off the bat get an, a job in IT um and and so that that was was you know was where that journey went from majoring at, at university in, in Nottingham um and then I ended up finding myself in Chester um in the UK and just being in this office you know I, I very much recall how I knew that it wasn't going to end well is <laughs> that I was in an IT office but one day I would turn up with like bobby pins in my hair the next day I would turn up and I'd be rocking some kind of post-punk goth Madonna new wave like look and I remember my boss and my boss's boss would frequently tell me okay you need to change your outfit because it's male-dominated environment and it's distracting and unprofessional and I remember as well just turning up in these like five-inch stilettos one day and they told me you know you need that's not great for health and safety so uh, <laughs> whilst whilst that is an incredibly anti-feminist rhetoric Although yeah. I do understand those heels because that technically wasn't safe like, <laughs> traipsing up and down the stairs in an office. Um, although I did have um, great balance at the time. Um, yeah, I just I just knew that this wasn't where I was happy. I, I clearly see I'm pushing back on that corporate environment. And honestly, it was um, I'd, I'd started to get into vintage fashion to express my sense of not fitting into a race because vintage fashion didn't matter if you were Asian or white or whatever your upbringing was. It was about the vintage pinup look. You kind of can't go into vintage fashion without hearing about burlesque because so many um, burlesque performers are advocates of vintage fashion. So I heard about this term burlesque, burlesque, burlesque. It was on my radar. Oh, wow, that looks amazing. Where can I do it? And um, yeah, around that time, it just, just so happened that a theatre down the road from where I was working, um, a comedy club actually in Chester, was auditioning for burlesque dancers to finish the comedy segments in the interval, um, just as like an after comedy um, moment. Um, and then I just, I just thought, that's a sign. 
you know, there's, there's once in a lifetime opportunities. So I had no experience. I went down to that venue with my friend at the time. We boldly pushed through the doors and um, convinced the owner that we were professional burlesque artists. And um, for some reason, I suppose it was me vibrating with just the desire to get out of a corporate environment with such passion that he said, great, and believed us and said, start next Friday. So my entry point to burlesque was actually having seven days to teach myself burlesque off of YouTube with zero experience and just blagging it completely. I didn't even know what outfits to get, where to get them from. I had absolutely no idea that zips don't undo from behind very easily if you don't attach a ribbon. <laughs> so all of these things. And um, yeah, my first show was in a professional 300, 400 seated theater. Um, and yes, <laughs> it's a trial by fire. I just yeah. remember the curtains opening and my heart racing in my throat and just going, you know what, just put on a show. And suffice to say, it wasn't the best performance of my career. Um, things got stuck, didn't know how to take some things off. But anyone who knows burlesque knows the spirit of burlesque is to have fun. You know, it really is about just owning your body and you don't have to be the best dancer. That isn't to say that you shouldn't learn your craft, but you don't have to be the best. You've just got to have that, that stage presence that brings people in and they loved it. So they said, um, yeah, come back every Friday, Friday night, Saturday night. So by day um, for a long time until I had um, the impetus to quit my IT job. I was an IT nerd by day. And then at the weekends by night, I was a showgirl secretly. And that was my existence for a little bit until I, until I thought, you know what, sink or swim. And that was the moment that I suppose I became this persona, I suppose, um, that, that you see on stage. That's an absolutely incredible story, especially knowing, you know, what will happen next in the, in the, in the following years to figure out that you really just kind of dove literally head first into something that you didn't know anything about um and you mentioned there you know the fact that you kind of did have to create this persona for yourself or carve out a space in this that was uniquely yours so how was that process and how did you go about doing that yeah well it's it's difficult because when I think about myself and I think about how I am on stage in many senses it isn't a persona in many senses I am always me and I've always been authentically me. But as I look back now, I do think that those formative years, I was not just, um, I was experimenting. I think I was experimenting with my looks and experimenting with myself. So was it authentically me? Y yes. Is it who I am? Maybe not necessarily. I think I went through a couple of incarnations of growing literally on the stage. I grew in front of the public, I suppose, um, to become the person that I am um, now. But I think possibly one of the most influential conversations I ever had in, in creating the burlesque routines and in cre creating myself and, and establishing myself within the industry was sitting down with somebody um, that I met through a local burlesque event. And um, she said to me, you've got to have a gimmick. You've got to have something that's unique. You've got to have something that makes you stand out. You know, don't be a generic pinup doing burlesque. What is it that makes you you? What is it that makes you different? And I said, well, I'm, I'm Singaporean. I'm, 
you know, my father's Singaporean, I'm half Singaporean. She's like, well, that's your thing. That's your unique point. And, and there weren't very many women of color doing burlesque when I started. There weren't especially not um, brown or desi performance. It was almost unheard of. Um, what I didn't realize was that there were no Singaporeans, um, but that's, that's, that comes later in the, in the realization. But I knew that that was, that was something that, that would be representative of my style of burlesque. So I really ran with it. And, you know, you look, if you look back at some of my first routines, instead of using a ostrich feather fan, I instead had um, staves with palm leaves attached because that was, you know, so so uh, you know indicative of my upbringing my heritage um yeah and I, and I think I proudly I really proudly um owned that because it was it was also a rebellious act to be like yeah I'm a Singaporean woman yeah I'm an Indian woman yeah I'm a brown woman um and look at me I'm doing burlesque and I'm not going to shy away from that in fact I'm going to put Singapore on the map when it comes to burlesque and that became like a mission of mine um so that's how kind of how that formed as the years have kind of gone by um it's funny that whilst I unfortunately <laughs> perhaps um unfortunately I always tend to gravitate toward the weird end of the spectrum um so I can't say that I will ever be visually grounded um but mentally I'm, I'm, I don't need the pomp and circumstance anymore. I don't need the rainbow hair. I think the difference is, is I can take it or leave it. But back then I needed it because I hadn't been allowed to do it. And thus I wasn't just gonna have rainbow hair. I was gonna have a five meter long wig at Elton John's party. I wasn't just gonna have blonde hair. I was gonna have shock blonde hair. I wasn't just gonna have blue hair. I was gonna have the most blue hair. I wasn't just gonna have like, slightly Bollywood routine I was going to weave a sari into my costume so all of that was very very big energy that was coming from this place of being told I wasn't allowed or not being allowed and just being like I'm going to do everything now <laughs> so yeah so I suppose there's there's just a little difference between myself now and myself during those first um, routines perhaps and I think that difference is is that I've got it out of my system now and I've become very at peace and very confident with my power as a brown woman and um, I'm very confident with how I express myself and extraordinarily confident with my sexuality and I think that 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 almost creates this visual now when you look at me with my brown hair it might seem as if the, the Suki of old <laughs> is a persona <laughs> but actually it, you're just watching a human grow in a very public way. Yeah, it's really incredible. And so at this point, you'd carved out a name for yourself in the UK. Your career had taken off. You'd quit your job, as you said. You'd taken that leap. And so then to, to put that against the background of in Singapore, I think until 2015, burlesque was illegal. Um, and obviously you had a very traditional family that perhaps maybe wouldn't have been so accepting straight away I'm not sure what that situation was for you but so taking that you were being you were successful in the UK against what was happening in Singapore why did you decide to move back well it was a legal gray area so public burlesque performances weren't allowed you couldn't get a license um 
you know, so it was under the public indecency laws, it just wasn't allowed to be performed. They didn't consider it an art, they considered it um, sexually inappropriate and certainly not palatable for public audiences. So you're right, why then, um, considering that I had built up, started to build up a reputation for myself in the UK, why did I feel the need? And that's really, um, it kind of comes from that everything that I'd experienced in childhood, you're not allowed, you're not allowed, you're not allowed, no, 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 no. That really made me quite a passionate individual. And also, I suppose, not triggered, but very, very anti, you're not allowed, especially coming from, you know, during my childhood, it was, you know, predominantly a male figure. And here was a patriarchal government once again telling women what they can or cannot do with their bodies because for what reason precisely it's sexual uh well not really you know almost 80 percent of my audiences are women so perhaps it's more an uncomfortable narrative that uh we actually don't need you and we're not trying to uh, seek validation from you and we're certainly not um welcoming in objectification um so there was that but even still Doing burlesque and my parents finding out about burlesque was very, very painful. My mom actually Googled me and that's how she found out that I was no longer in IT. Um, <laughs> I didn't tell them. And when I did that, it was very painful, massive conflict. I remember my father saying some things that were so painful. And I, it, it, it's awful to think of really because I was kind of, I'd started to travel to different countries and not, not when you think about now it's dangerous, but you know, I remember with my friend getting on a flight to Japan, I'd never been to Japan before and just meeting a stranger and staying at their apartment and doing a bunch of burlesque shows in Kyoto. When you think about that, you know, walking back alone at two o'clock in the morning um, and then flying to New York, doing the same thing, staying with what was a total stranger. Obviously, they'd advertise themselves as a burlesque producer, but a total stranger. And, you know, and th those moments and also kind of having to pay my bills by myself, having to survive by myself, having no emotional financial support at all, um, being essentially cut off. Um, and the, the alternative was give up burlesque and you can always come home and we'll support you, which is actually quite a toxic statement to make, I think was very painful. So it would have been easier not to make that situation worse by going back to my home country um, and, and, and risking my whole entire family finding out. And also, also the, the, the damage that that would have in terms of, you know, what my parents thought of me and I remember um saying I was going to go back to Singapore and my father saying you can't stay with the family um and also saying they, they can't find out about you and it wasn't a threat but it was um very frightening position to be in where you have a choice now either I could go against my father and out of the, the reasons aforementioned push for women like myself especially Singaporean women to be allowed to do these things so that parents wouldn't tell their kids this was illegal or this was inappropriate um versus 
crushing my parents and creating even more separation than already fragmented family structure. And honestly, truthfully, what sealed the deal for me um, was that I had I built up an online community and I'd started to receive phenomenal support from girls, women around the world and guys saying, well done for doing burlesque. Thank you for being so brave. You've inspired me to go up against my parents and do art. You've inspired me to dye my hair when as Asians we're often told we should keep our natural hair color because that will make us more attractive in terms of marriage. Just crazy things like this. And I think at that point it shifted from my own journey to a responsibility. It's almost like I didn't choose to be a role model. I was accidentally thrust into this position. Um, and that in the mix with everything, I just thought, no, I've got to do this. I've got to do this. This is what is right. I cannot let my parents and their almost at the time suffocating repression stop me becoming the person I was born to be and, and helping others become the people that they was they were born to be. And so I just went for it and I moved back. I was there in and out for 10 years, um, but that was a four year journey to campaign, spread the word, set up an underground movement, teach burlesque classes anyway, even though we weren't technically allowed at all, um, pretend they were yoga classes bubble it up create an embarrassment of the Singapore government internationally really um so that you know it looks like um why weren't they supporting an artist it, you know this is an art and I, I really did embark on a massive it was like a combination of just getting coverage and exposure internationally to the point of which and I I, I am it's it perhaps it was quite a awful strategy really but it was a case of almost make it so embarrassing that they have to say yes um, because it's so it becomes so ludicrous because everyone else is expect is accepting a Singaporean artist you have to accept your own and I honestly thought that that journey I would start on it but I wouldn't finish it or if I did that was going to be years and years and luckily it was a year, it's a case of timing as well in life, a little bit of timing and a little bit of putting yourself in the right place at the right time. SG50 happened and it was our 50th year of independence and suddenly the eyes of the world were looking to Singapore and looking to see how far they'd come. And Singapore wanted to portray a grown non-nanny state, vibrant community and I think it was a culmination of that, that then in 2015, um, on the 31st of January, I won. And I was able to perform burlesque publicly in Singapore. And I'm talking about a full burlesque striptease, which previously hadn't been allowed publicly. Um, in, in, in modern day Singapore, of course, you know, you have male dominated spaces in Singapore which I won't, <laughs> I won't touch on that's a whole other thing but burlesque as a as a public entertainment hadn't been and so yeah it was re remarkable really to have achieved that I suppose in four years when I honestly thought it would be a 10-year struggle.
Yeah, I mean, I can't even begin to imagine what that must have felt like <laughs> in terms of from where you started with it to, yeah. to where you ended. Can you maybe describe, it's probably very difficult to describe, but because there must have been some fear at some point too. I mean, you're effectively, I feel like with family, there's always a way to get back and things, you know, but in a, in, for a moment, you lost your family and then you were standing up against an entire country's government as one as one human how did you mentally emotionally deal with that did I <laughs> um, <laughs> from the outside um, it looks like you did incredibly <laughs> yeah I think I think the key is to never let um bullying be it from family pressure governmental pressure peer pressure industry pressure I think it's never to let people tell you you can't do something, never to let cynicism ruin your light, never let pain and something difficult stop you if you know you're doing the right thing. I think it's a great amount of bravery, but honestly, I think the very thing that I for a while resented my parents for is the very tool that equipped me to be able to, to stand up to that, which is, and I do think about this, if they'd have let me do art, would I be as passionate and as strong a woman as I am now or an individual? I think the answer is no. Would I be as successful as I am now? The answer is no. It was the fact that they didn't let me that gave me this uncontrollable fire in my belly that I was not going to let anyone tell me or tell people around me what to do when I knew that burlesque was a legitimate art form. It wasn't even about burlesque. It was just, you can't police women's bodies. You cannot police women's bodies for no reason. You know, burlesque isn't overtly sexual. You know, it's really not overtly sexual and it's certainly not male placating objectification it is an art form it's deep intense artistry and I think no one was going to take that away from 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 us <laughs> I wasn't going to let that happen and so um it was a bit of um right well I guess a lot of bravery but I suppose it was also a lot of passion born from a childhood of, of not being able to be and 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 I think that that's really the place of which it came from so in a sense and I think this is why I've really you know I've gone through this whole process perhaps healing process I suppose in a sense of forgiving my parents is that maybe without that I wouldn't be where I am now I'd rather have not gone through all that pain I'm not going to lie to you because it has been deeply painful and at times very lonely as you say one human although I did rally a lot of support which I'm very eternally grateful for it, at the end you're the person that goes home at night when people are saying all kinds of things about you and the only person who's inside your head is you so it is a bit of a lonely journey but I think um in a sense I'm grateful that I, I'm without sounding too morbid or tragic I'm grateful that my parents did that to me because what beauty was born from what pain essentially yeah 
when you were talking there, I just kind of thought of that whole concept that people talk about in terms of art is pain and whether or not you can really be a successful artist without suffering through some some great pain. What's your yeah. thoughts on that? I, I mean, I'm the kind of person that lives in minor chords. You know, I'm just drawn towards, <laughs> you know, symphonies and D minor. I mean, I'm drawn towards the more, you know, Max Richter's November is something that I'm listening on repeat at the moment. I'm just drawn towards the more beautifully painful um, notes of life. And I think that um, you can create um, art from positivity, um, but when it comes to deeply, I guess, deeply describing the journey that each of us go through it, to exist in an artistic manner, I think that there's no such thing as somebody who was born happy and dies happy and had no trauma in between. And art in an artist's job, potentially, is not just to say something that you haven't thought about, but it is to make you feel less lonely. The job of an artist, perhaps certainly for me, is to make all of us who are the only people living our lives to feel slightly less lonely and slightly less sad. And I think the most poignant way to do that is to resonate with not just the happy notes of life, but the painful notes of life. And so I suppose, unless you've been through it, you can't create that work that truly makes people feel seen and less lonely, perhaps. And so, yes, I do think that whilst it is a terrible cliche, and I suppose I'm joining the masses on being just another, just another cliched artist, I think that, yes, perhaps, an element of pain is required to create the greatest pieces of art. I think it's so true and and also as you touched on there I don't know if that layer of authenticity and truth can be present without having genuinely lived through through some of that if you want to use the word torture as people call them tortured artists um I just right. wanted to get your take on that because I think it's so interesting and it, it plays so much into what you've been saying the whole time um and mm. so you obviously kind of left off in your journey where you'd won, you were allowed to perform publicly. I'm curious to know how the general public of Singapore received your performance and also then what happened after that? Where did you take things next? Um, yeah, well, it was, um, it was a mixed bag, really. Luckily, overall, I think it has been met with celebration and you just have to see the venues that have opened now that are doing burlesque performances um, to see that it's had a massive positive impact in that space and has been welcomed and has been in adopted into mainstream Singaporean culture now. Um, so in that sense, it has been you know, widely welcomed. But of course, you'll always get individuals you know, very blue collar traditional individuals or your parents' generation who are still going to think you're doing something sexual and are still going to disapprove of it and are still going to say, you know, or laugh at you or say burlesque as a whisper instead of just as a, you know, oh, you're burlesque. do you know what I mean? And I think, um, um, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's tough. But I think overall, 
um, it has been accepted. Um, I think with anything though, when you're pushing something for the first time or you're pushing the mold, you'll always have people who don't like what you're doing. You'll always have haters and you'll always have people that are uncomfortable with change and growth. But the key is just to push through it. And another aspect of your journey, I know that you went on then to take on LA and, you know, introduce yourself to Hollywood, if, if you want to call it that, um, and had massive success there and are, still are. Um, but another arm of your journey, which is actually where I came across um, you, was Singapore Social, the reality TV program that you did. So I'd be curious to know how that came about and why you chose to um, take part. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. Well, I guess that's because it was, again, another case of timing in that I'd done all these things and obviously being in Singapore and then the movie Crazy Rich Asians came out. And I think suddenly everyone jumped on board with, oh, my gosh, first of all, many people hadn't known where Singapore was. I couldn't place it on a map. So I think there was that curiosity um, of Singapore and what are the real Singaporeans like? Are they like these Crazy Rich Asians? Um, and so everyone kind of, all these TV production companies jumped on, right, we need to show the world what these people are and, 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 and expose people to real life, crazy rich Singaporeans. Can't say I was in the rich category, um, but certainly I suppose from an outsider perspective could possibly qualify as visually quite crazy and certainly bold as hell. <laughs> so I guess that was the category. Um, and so Netflix was one of the, one of the, um, you know, um, houses that were looking to make it. And so they approached us, they actually approached us saying it was going to be more documentary format. So ordinarily, I don't know if I'd have done a reality TV. I'd toyed with the concept of it. I'd, I'd certainly thought about it in the past. And I had, I suppose, as part of like pushing the, the rhetoric of burlesque, I thought, oh, maybe I ought to do this. Um, would I have done hardcore reality TV at that point in my life then with everything that I'd established and all my credibility? Possibly not. But they did say unscripted docuseries. And so thus I said yes. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Um, but I suppose what ensued was reality TV. And and um, it's, it's funny because you can look at it two ways. You can kind of like laugh it off because obviously reality TV, yes, yes, is reality in a sense. But of course, when you edit somebody's life over the course of kind of three, four months into six or eight episodes, you can pick whatever moment you wish from that person. Um, so that tends to be the danger with it. Um, so it wasn't necessarily... Um, you know, some, something that I would say was my greatest piece of work, but certainly it got me, you know, incredible exposure and, you know, just ending up with the, the um, Hard Rock Cafe billboard in Times Square and just being able to, as you say, access, I hate to use the term Hollywood, um, I suppose, but I guess that's what you call it, Hollywood. It did open so many doors of which I am phenomenally grateful. And the actual filming process was was incredible, really. I mean, I suppose I, I'd got into burlesque because I wanted to be an artist. Um, but when I wanted to be an artist, I didn't necessarily want to be a burlesque artist. I just wanted to express myself and be an artist. And I think what it taught me was how much I loved being on screen. And um, even though there were moments that are incredibly highly stressful, I'm sure you've seen them, um, that are possibly not indicative of my personality. But sure, if it makes great TV, why not? 
Um, what I did garner from that was that I knew I wanted to be on screen. And I think that has informed these next steps of my journey. I, I, I'm constantly torn, I suppose, between what I'm doing for myself because I didn't do it when I wanted to and what is actually helpful for others. I, I, I am tormented every single day with this because in part, I have all these incredible opportunities now to head towards scripted film and television. And I, I want to so much because I want to express myself. I want to be, I want to be brilliant at something. Um, and I want to be a great artist, but also I, I, I very much check in with myself as to whether what I'm doing is self-serving, vacuous celebrity nonsense, or whether what I'm doing is actually helping people. And especially after all of my struggles, I've really felt this sense of my purpose on earth is very much, I feel, to help people. And I think the only way going forward to be able to make sure that I do that and I serve people as I want to, uh, as I want to, is, is, is because, is, is if I, um, and I'm thinking as I go along here, I suppose as if I make sure that every opportunity I have, I, I bring in a rhetoric that will be helpful for people genuinely. I make sure I counterbalance it with real activism. And I'm not talking about just a Facebook post or an Instagram post. I'm talking about going and talking to kids, being on the ground. And so I think that going forward, I, I am kind of blindly and boldly and terrifyingly pursuing this momentum that Singapore Social and Netflix has given me. And I am wanting to see it to the end. But at every point in my journey, I can promise you, I will counterbalance it with something that is doing real good. And I don't think I can ever change from being that person. And I don't think I'd ever want to. Yeah, and I think it's so clear to see that through all of your channels, how much activism you do for women. And already, I mean, your career is so centered around this um, mission to serve others as opposed to just yourself, which I think is so refreshing and inspirational to hear. And so on that same vein, I suppose, if you had to give you know, a few lines of a definition of what the word success means to you. As, you know, someone sitting here looking in, you've obviously had the success in terms of Netflix and, you know, fame and all that kind of thing that that's maybe superficial success. But you've also had the other end of the spectrum where you have literally changed laws in a country to support women and their freedom of expression. So I'd be really curious to hear what you as Suki define a success um well I, I hate to disappoint you um after wow thank you for some, summarizing that but um I think I have come to believe that success and the measure of success is happiness and um that doesn't matter whether you've changed a law or you've got on tv or you've had a show or you've become the greatest doctor or you're in Forbes or all of this is, is to be honest with you, if you'll excuse the word, is, is bullshit. I think the measure of success, and you can only measure success in terms of like, I suppose if, uh, an overview of your life, I think the measure of success, how successful are you 
is um, have you have you successfully experienced being a human and to successfully experience being a human is to come away happy and for me happiness really comes truthfully all the bullshit aside from helping others I honestly couldn't I, 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 I do need elements of it, but I also, in, in a bizarre dichotomy, also couldn't care less about my own success. Um, my happiness is living this human experience, um, comes from helping others. And that is my measure of success. And that's what makes me happy. So I think even if you made a cup of tea or you're caring for your mother who's sick, or even if you, found moments of joy in a really really rough life to the point of which you found pockets of happiness I think that's the only measure of success that matters at the end of the day yeah I think that's really incredible to hear and I I like to ask that to everyone that I speak to just because you get such variations of of what um you know people live through and it's kind of an insight into your own human experience as you were saying there um and then my last question for you before I let you go and eat some lunch because I know I've um, <laughs> I've had you for a while so fascinating to hear your story um if you could go back to your 10 year old self living in a very traditional family, having this inner conflict of wanting to express yourself, but not wanting to disappoint your parents or your culture. What's the biggest piece of advice you would give that little girl moving forward? Wow. Um, gosh. I suppose I would say be brave. Um, be brave. It's going to be a rocky road but hang on in there because um, you're going to make it, whatever that means. And I don't just mean in career. I just mean you're just going to get through and you're going to make it. Just so, so you just hang on in there and be brave. I think there were moments where whilst overall I was brave, my bravery has faltered. But um, I think perhaps I would just give her, give her a bit of a hug and just just say be uh, be brave because it will all work out in the end it will I think with that I mean knowing the journey that you're about to go on if I always just immediately when you started speaking if only she knew what she was about to do <laughs> and how proud she would be now I think um even even for myself this has been such an inspirational conversation that's why I wanted to chat with you and so I oh, just want to yeah no like I just wanted to take this time to say thanks so much you're so busy and you know doing so many things so I really appreciate you giving this hour of your time um to share your stories thanks Suki thank you so much and thank you for everything you're doing as well providing a platform for people to share their voices you're equally a phenomenal person and more women should should uh, support other women and more humans should support other humans so thank you so much for having me as always, thank you so much for listening and please rate, share and leave a comment if you like what you hear. Don't forget to follow at what it's like pod on Instagram and Facebook. To find out more about Suki and her fascinating story, visit the links provided in the show notes. I'll be back soon with more inspiring stories. But for now, this has been what it's like with Luce.